Well, if you have a Bible, we are going to be again in Daniel this morning. We are eight weeks into our journey through this Old Testament book. And our text today is going to be Daniel chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, turn there. And we're here because we're trying to seek all that the Lord has to teach us about being God's witnesses in disorienting times. Now, tomorrow is 4th of July. Tomorrow we're celebrating our nation's birthday. Tomorrow we mark 246 years since our 13 American colonies declared their independence from the British Empire. And I am honored and blessed to have grown up in this country. It's a nation that took in my family as they fled uh, turmoil and strife uh, in Latin America. It's a country that also opened its doors to other ancestors that were fleeing war-ravaged Europe. And I deeply appreciate the uh, democratic republic that God has had me be born into and, and the f- human flourishing that our, our nation has helped affect in the world. And that's one side of the coin. The, the other side of the coin was expressed to me by my uh, twin sister this week when she said, quite simply, America is exhausting. Uh, and no means have we arrived as a nation. We still grapple with our human brokenness. We are still kind of wrestling with the legacies of past wrongs, with ongoing forces of injustice in our life together. And there are many things in this moment that are causing disorientation, right? There's inflation, there's a war in Europe, there's kind of our culture's changing sexual mores, there's major decisions coming out of the Supreme Court, there's a very contentious political climate that we have not seen in a generation, and folks worry that things might be spinning out of control, and people are exhausted, and and feelings of alienation and anxiety are just spiking right now. And even we as a church have not been immune to this turmoil. Right and left, we as the people of God have allowed our political passions, you might say, to be hijacked. And let me just say, political passion is not a bad thing. Remember how we started our series, we were in Jeremiah chapter 29 with the prophet's letter to the exiles, and God charged his people with this assignment. He said, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare, seek the wholeness, seek the prosperity, seek the peace of the nation in which I have placed you. Why? Because in your community's welfare, you'll find your welfare. And isn't that what motivates us or should motivate us as the people of God? That's what's behind our political passions. Jesus has commissioned us to be his people of blessing, to be his salt and light in a dark and hurting world. And after all, it was Jesus who taught us to pray, Father, let your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And that should inspire us 
to seek God's best for our community. And that often will translate into kind of political passion. So political passion is not a bad thing, but it can become destructive when we as the people of God lose track of our primary identity in Christ. When we allow that passion to be hijacked by other forces. Our political passions, when hijacked, can be destructive to us, to our witness, to the church. So when it comes to current events, do you ever find yourself being emotionally hijacked by, say, anger or fear or even glee at the other side's misfortune? I actually feel like there's a lot of that going on right now. And when a strong emotion kind of grabs control and rests the reins inside, it can lead us off the road into to rough feelings or rough interactions that we may have thought better of. What about this? Have you ever experienced your values being hijacked? You showed up to stand for something in particular, some cause or community, some principle or or issue of wise governance, but all of a sudden you're being asked to advocate for someone or, or defend something that you never signed up for. What about identity? Can the very, our very identity as the people of God be hijacked by the political powers that be? Too often I've heard, well, real Christians must vote for this candidate or this cause or this particular policy to actually be God's people in the world. As if our partisan political ideas supersede our spiritual identity. To which I say, no, no, no. Our political passions become hijacked and destructive when we, as the people of God, lose track of our primary identity in Christ. In God's word, in kind of complicated and heated seasons, it actually calls us to navigate these times like Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who we've been journeying with these past eight weeks, to navigate this season as if we are exiles living in a foreign land called by God to be his witnesses. And this is particularly jarring for us who are our native-born Americans Because we don't want to be exiles. And sometimes it's folks who are immigrants or or naturalized citizens who might actually have a leg up on us here on understanding what is the clear teaching of Scripture. So just listen to some of these verses from the New Testament. This is Hebrews 11, 13 through 14. These, the spiritual heroes that the chapter is detailing, All died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking 
a homeland. What about 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 12? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What about Philippians 3.20? But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, our lowly body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. What is the message of those verses? Navigate this world as someone who is fully invested in seeking the be- God's best for your nation. But remember that your true homeland lay elsewhere. Stand firm. Be a blessing. Don't get hijacked by the political passions of those around you. Your true citizenship is not in Babylon, but it's in God's kingdom. So live as God's witnesses. Point to Jesus constantly, for he has called you for these disorienting times. That's the message that we see in Scripture. But can I tell you, this sort of long-suffering faithfulness, this sort of kind of detached activism, it is hard. And it's impossible even if God is not working in us and through us. But we can take heart because for those of us who trust and follow Jesus, we do have Christ's Spirit inside of us to transform us because we can't do it on our own. We need God at work as he was in Daniel's life to change our desires, to mature our emotions, to settle our identity into something solid where we will know who we are and whose we are and what our calling is is. But as we see in the book of Daniel, God's Spirit is at work not simply to change our character. God's Spirit is also giving us perspective, the perspective that we will need to live as God's exiles. He speaks a message of hope that can fuel and sustain us in this life of faithfulness to which God has called us. And for Daniel, this perspective comes through a crazy dream that we're going to unpack this morning in Daniel chapter 7. And the dream contains for Daniel this profound truth, which says in order to live faithfully as God's witnesses in Babylon, we must look to Christ as our future and our hope. So let's see how this unpacks. So we're in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. 
In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, that was the uh, party boy who saw the writing on the wall, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So we're going to kind of step out of the narrative flow of Daniel's story, and we're in this new section of the book. And throughout this book, he's, we've seen different dreams and visions, but usually they're the dreams and visions of the kings. These are the men who conquered nations and built empires and shaped the world, and usually Daniel has been called on to interpret their dreams for them. But now at the climax of this book, it is not their dreams, but it's a dream that God gives Daniel, our elderly, long-suffering exile, who's done his best to live as God's witness in a foreign land. And now in verse 2, we get to kind of hear the content of that dream. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night... And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts, sea monsters you might say, came out of the sea, different from one another. We're stepping into kind of this dream world, this kind of fantastical realm of of ancient mythology. And we see the winds of heaven kind of blowing across the surface of this cosmic sea. And this should be bringing you back to the the first verses of Scripture, to the very story of creation, when we hear the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep of the waters. That wind represents God's ordering hand, his hovering spirit, the the divine force of life and goodness and beauty that creates and recreates, that that guides history to God's predetermined places. So that's the wind, but the roiling waters, in contrast, are, are chaos and disorder, the forces of darkness and evil that resist God's just rule and his will for the cosmos. And we see that in this dream, in response to God's activity, in response to the wind, the raging sea reacts, and it sends out its champions for battle. And we get these mythic beasts rising up out of the waves and they're hell-bent on, on destruction and, and ravaging the earth, on kind of stamping their fallen image on God's good creation and, and directing history to their corrupt ends. And then we get to see what these various sea monsters look like. So starting in verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked and its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. This is a strange dream. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear 
It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So we catch a glimpse of a a winged lion. In the ancient world, that kind of a creature was called a, a lamasu, and it was seen as the throne guardians of the kingdom of Babylon. We also get a quick look at a savage bear who's kind of misshapen and out of balance, and he's already eating, but it sounds like he's destined to consume even more flesh. And then we see slink out of the water this kind of swift winged leopard that can kind of move with lightning aggression in any direction that can kind of see everything that's going on around it. I think the message is that in these waters, there be monsters. And I'd love to kind of nerd out and unpack all of this imagery, but I want to save it for for life groups. I want to save it if you are wired this way. Come up to me afterwards. Let's unpack it. Let's wrestle. But I do think it's funny that we say that a, a picture is worth a thousand words, and then when Scripture gives us a picture, we're like, no, 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 please give us a thousand words to explain it. Uh, instead of letting kind of the power and the mystery wash over it, wash over us. So I, I do love wrestling with this questions, but I want us to not miss the forest for the trees. And just know that these creatures seem to represent the arrogant empires that are going to rise and dominate the ancient world. Namely, the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians and the Greeks under the energetic leadership of Alexander the Great. And God is revealing to Daniel what will soon take place. And while it's really strange to us, it shouldn't be that weird because even today we have kind of that verbal tick where we describe nations as predatory animals, right? You've got the Russian bear and the American eagle and the Chinese dragon. This is still something that we do today. But as we keep reading, Daniel's dream gets even darker. And after these kind of successive kingdoms, there will arise another one that seems to be even more horrible and more devastating, a globe-altering terror. And we read in verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and it broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, 
and a mouth speaking great things. This last beast is, is bizarre and it defies description. It seems to be no one thing but kind of this grotesque composite monster stitched together from the stuff of nightmares. It's this embodiment of ferocity and brutality and really everything that goes bump in the night. And scholars debate how we're supposed to understand this fourth beast. Some of them see this as the Syrians that will come up uh, under the leadership of a man named Antiochus IV and, and persecute God's people. Others see this fourth beast as the Roman Empire that will ultimately destroy Jerusalem and God's temple. Others see it as a still-yet-to-come regime that will bring pain and persecution. I really do think that it's impossible to definitively decipher the identity of this last beast, but I think that's a bit by design. Because the point of this passage is not the monsters on parade. The point of this passage is what comes next. And as I looked, it says in verse 9, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. The ancient of days, this is the creator of heaven and earth, the most high God. His clothing was white as snow. It's a mark of his purity. His hair of his head was like pure wool, a sign of his wisdom. His throne was fiery flames, a picture of his power and his holiness. And its wheels were burning fire. God's throne has wheels because his dominion is all over the universe. He is not confined to one place. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands, a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Daniel's name means the Lord is my judge, and in this dream he sees the judge presiding in his courtroom. Seated in all authority behind his bench, gavel in hand, ready to render verdict. And in God's courtroom, there is no need for further inquiry or fact-finding. His knowledge is absolute. His books record all of humanity's deeds. He knows all that takes place in these kind of earthly kingdoms and these beastly empires, and in a blink, it seems that his gavel falls. And we read in verse 11, And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time." That great monster, the fourth beast, is slain, and the other creatures are stripped of their power. God is victorious. He's revealed as the universe's true sovereign. The beasts are no match for him. 
But how this victory takes place is the the truly surprising part of this dream. Verse 13, I I saw in the night visions, and, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." In those verses, we see the world restored and made new. We see God's will established on earth as it is in heaven. We see God's reign embodied in all of its goodness and beauty and justice through the solitary figure that we hear called the Son of Man. Son of Man. The title certainly implies his humanity. But also we see him riding on the clouds. And and Psalm 104 declares that God is the one who makes the clouds his chariots, who rides on the wings of the wind. So how can a mere man do so? What's more, upon this Son of Man, the fullness of, of God's rule is placed upon him. We we hear that he's given an everlasting dominion, the full weight of divine authority. He's the one who's charged with making all things new. It's he who rescues, who heals God's world from the ravages of these beasts. Do you know who this is? This is Jesus, fully man, fully divine, the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is the one who purchases humanity back for God with his sacrifice on a Roman cross. It's he who breaks the power of the beasts and makes the world new. And he he does it through a cross and an empty tomb. That's how it begins. And it will come in fullness when he returns to the earth. So the point of this dream is to shine a spotlight on Jesus. He is humanity's great champion, our promised deliverer. It is he that Daniel should be looking forward to and placing his hope in, not whatever kingdom comes after Babylon. He should invest all of his aspirations for the future of his people in Jesus. And yes, there will be rulers, Daniel, God is trying to say, that will exalt themselves above God, that, like that little weird speaking horn that will bring suffering and persecution upon God's people. But he says, take heart, God's anointed one will come and rescue God's people. He will slay the beast and he will establish God's kingdom on the earth. 
And there's more to this chapter, but I, I want to leave it here today. What's the point of this weird, crazy, psychedelic dream? I think it's quite simply to live faithfully as God's witnesses in Babylon. We must look to Jesus as our future and our hope. This has been the whole message of Daniel. Don't miss it. I love how one biblical scholar puts it. He says that the book of Daniel shows us a pattern that is at work in history while also offering us a promise that is for all generations. And so what's the pattern? The pattern is that humans and their kingdoms become beasts when they don't acknowledge God and his authority. Humans and their kingdoms become beasts when they don't acknowledge God and his authority. So are you struggling maybe with the state of our nation? Most of us are. We think that either the culture has gone haywire or that the system is broken. And what's happening is that we are reacting to the beastliness that we see in our nation. And again, this shouldn't surprise us. Scripture says all nations go beastly when they refuse to acknowledge God and his kingdom. And our country is no exception. Israel and Judah were no exception. Now, we might be reacting differently to the beastliness we see at work. Some folks are reacting towards a callousness to the unborn. Others are reacting towards a, a callousness to the poor. But it's still beastliness, so to speak, that we're responding to. And our angst is justified. But what we're doing with our angst is not. No political candidate, no congressional majority, no Supreme Court is going to slay the beast. That is not our hope. Instead, we press forward as faithful exiles, seeking the welfare of our nation, knowing that hardship might be our lot. But we do it, Daniel says, because we have hope, because we have a promise. And what is the promise that we see in Daniel's dream? That God one day will confront the beast, rescue his world and his people, and bring his kingdom to the earth. Now, he's come already. He came 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for us, making us the recipients of a, a truly gracious exchange. We give Jesus our trust and allegiance. He gives us the world purchased for us at great cost when he died for us. We give him our brokenness and our corruption and he gives us forgiveness and new life. We give him our weakness. He gives us his power that conquers death. We give him our mortality. He gives us eternity. He chooses to be alienated from his father, 
by our sins so that we can be adopted into the family of God. So that we might be called beloved sons and daughters of the King. Those with whom God shares his very spirit, his very life. Those with whom he comes to take up residence, it says in Scripture. God's Spirit comes so that the Holy God might be within us, within you, within this community, making us new. So I know it's weird and I know it's hard to process, but I think God gives us this dream so that we have the end of the story secure in our mind. The Son of Man is coming. And his victory is sure. It's a comforting word, but it's a challenging message too. And I think we have to accept that sometimes we won't have all the details. But we just need to know this. Jesus is our future and our hope. Our all-knowing God has the future in control. And even if that future might have hardship or difficulty, we can trust him because he is good, because he loves us, and because he's making all things new. So we might live in tumultuous times. We might live in times of anxiety or fear or uncertainty. But every time you feel that, every time you start to get hijacked, I think God invites us to pray this prayer. Christ is our future. Christ is our hope. We need to remember that over and over again. Christ is our future. Christ is our hope. There's this... uh, ancient Christian practice called breath prayer. And it's simply these short little prayers that we connect with the rhythm of our breathing. It says in Scripture to pray without ceasing. And so often our mind wanders. So often we get caught up and taken off track by circumstances and emotions. And so believers started to have these little prayers that they would draw from Scripture, that they would... On the inhale, they would say a little prayer. On the exhale, they would say a little prayer. And for me, one of these breath prayers that has been really helpful is quite simply, Christ is our future. Christ is our hope. However you feel about the season that we're living in, Christ is our future. Christ is our hope. Our responsibility is to be faithful to God, to be faithful to his ways, to trust him to be his agents of blessing, to seek the peace of the country that God has planted us in. And he is in charge of our future. He is in charge of our hope when we see things that are ugly and are painful and feel beastly in our world, Christ is our future. Christ is our hope.
We trust him to come make the world new. We trust him to break the power of evil, sin, and death. We have the down payment on the cross. But we also trust him with the future. That his kingdom might come. And his will would be done on earth, on this earth, as it is in heaven. So can we pray that prayer together? Let's try it. Let's breathe in and say, Christ is our future. Christ is our future. Breathe out. Christ is our hope. Amen. Dear God, Lord, we trust you. There is so much going on. Our world is in turmoil. But you have not left us in the dark. You have not left us confused. Sure, you may not have given us all of the answers. You may not have explained it with incredible precision where we feel like we're in control. But you've given us enough. You said, trust me, the future is in my hands. I will make all things new. I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. I will make justice roll down like waters. Christ, you are our future. Christ, you are our hope. Forgive us when we've put our hope in anything less. When we've tried to take control and force the future to look how we want it to look. Instead, Lord, may we partner with you and trust you and labor with you as we are in good hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.